This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. We all must trick and treat. Um, I want to uh, welcome our fine speaker today, Alison Draper, who uh, I know a little bit about um, before embarking on her career as a vocation as a priest she's had a full life and even as a priest she has uh, done some remarkable things of um, getting a master's of divinity and along the way uh, being a huge instrument in the process of the Shogaku Institute becoming a an accredited master's of divinity program in the state of California so um, uh, also, wherever she goes, she makes a difference. I know that from uh, some personal situations and other stories. So uh, welcome, Allison, and uh, thank you for being here on short notice for this talk today. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> Happy Halloween. Um, Deeply grateful to you, Doug, to the other guiding teachers and to the community here at Jokoji for inviting me to share such a beautiful day and this practice with you. Uh, this is my first in-person practice uh, since the shutdown of COVID. So it's particularly both um, wonderful for me and also a little bit scary. And as those who are here in person noticed, I made a lot of mistakes as though she this morning. And so I um, re was reminded by Doug, isn't it great? Uh, we have that one continuous mistake teaching from uh, Dogen. So I'm grateful for that. Well, since today is Halloween, I thought I might um, give a talk about ghosts and also tell a Buddhist ghost story, which um, I hope will be entertaining, maybe informative, but most of all, hope you will find some piece of it that could be encouraging to your own life situation and practice. So let me start with a little Halloween history first. So in the Western Christian tradition, all Hallows Day or All Saints Day is celebrated on November 1st. The evening before October 31st is uh, designated as All Hallows Eve. And in the culture here uh, in the West and US and some but not all Christian traditions, uh, this is a time to um, remember the dead, including saints, martyrs, family who died, especially in the last year, and also the restless spirits or ghosts who have died, but who have not quite made their way to a resting place and are believed to wander the earth with some unfinished business. And there are some Christian rituals actually that go along uh, with this in some churches. Uh, for example, in the Catholic Church in which I grew up, um, November 1st is a holy day of obligation. And in other Christian churches as well, Protestant churches, um, the services involve prayers for all souls that they may pass over into God's care and eternal rest. And in Asian cultures and Buddhist traditions, we also set aside some time during the year to honor ancestors and also to uh, honor even those hungry ghosts who still wander the earth. For thousands of years in China, for example, they have a festival called the Hungry Ghost Festival that usually happens sometime in July or August. Um, there's temple practices, people set out offerings in their home altars, many people visit the graves of relatives who've died and make offerings, and there's often a community celebration. And this also comes to us through the 
Zen Buddhist tradition as a hungry ghost or sajiki uh, ceremony. And in, in Japan and other very Japanese uh, oriented temples here in the US, that uh, festival or celebration is often done in conjunction at the same time of year and even sometimes the same day as the Oban festival, which is more uh, secular and as a community bonfire and dancing and so forth. And in some of our uh, Soto Zen temples in the US, we actually have that celebration of Sajiki coincide with the Halloween uh, day. And so that is usually a very um, ex uh, unusually exuberant kind of celebration we don't normally see in our uh, austere Zen tradition, where families will come dressed up, there will be noise making and dancing, and uh, an altar will be set up opposite the, the Buddha altar in the Zendo with offerings of food. And so it's quite a boisterous occasion meant to invoke and appease and even entertain and do some mischief uh, with these hungry ghosts. So um, I thought, uh, even though we're not doing Sajiki here today, that it still might be fitting to talk a little bit about um, hungry ghosts and to tell a hungry ghost story and how it connects at least to my life and my practice, and maybe it will invoke something for you. So this is a story of one of our very first female ancestors. Her name was Kisa Gotami, and she lived in the time of the Buddha, the historical Buddha around 300 BC. So Kisa Gotami uh, could not accept the death of her only child, an infant son, and she carried that baby around with her day after day, maybe for weeks, going from villager to villager, crying, pleading for help. Until one day, a kind villager suggested that she go see the Buddha. And so she traveled probably a short distance at that time and found the Buddha and asked the Buddha for help. And he said, to her, if you go back to your village and collect one white mustard seed from every household in the village who has not experienced death and bring those mustard seeds back to me, I will make a potion to bring your baby back to life. And so she did, she went back to the village door to door. And in a few days, she returned to the Buddha and she said, not one, not one mustard seed. Thus, she was enlightened. And we are told that she then buried her infant son and became an ardent follower of Buddha. So in this story, a mother is actually carrying her dead child, a visible loss, an actual ghost of a person who's still there, but not there. And it's something we can all understand and empathize with. There's also symbolic losses, shadows and ghosts, not so visible, hungry ghosts that she's carrying with her too. For example, they're the ghosts of her desires, her desire maybe to be a mother, to nurture this particular child, to maybe see him grow up and become a father and maybe one day become the father of her grandchildren. And there were also losses associated with status and stability that came especially to a woman of that time. But even in this day and age, that comes with being the mother of a son in particular. 
So all of these things, both the very obvious visible death and ghost of her infant son, and also the ghosts of all of those symbolic and invisible losses. These are the things she was carrying with her to Buddha and to each of her neighbors. And the Buddha responds with skillful means. He dangles the solution she thinks she wants of bringing her infant son back to life and all of those things that she hoped and dreamed. He doesn't immediately fix her problems, but rather turns her back to her own life to investigate the source of her suffering, to investigate the very matter of life and death. In effect, he suggests that she go door to door and allow her village to acknowledge and honor her hungry ghosts. They probably invited her in, offered her food and tea and some comfort and solace. They could not offer her the mustard seed she requested, although they dearly wanted to. And so through this, Kisa Gotami, we can imagine experiences the first noble truth, the universality of suffering. And she returns to the Buddha with the information that no one has been untouched by death in her village. And in that moment, she's enlightened. Perhaps she sees that her suffering comes from her clinging to her desires, to the hungry ghosts that haunt her and block her way forward. And when she's able to accept and acknowledge these, she can literally give up the ghost of her dead son. And in letting go, she sees the way forward to end her own suffering. And those are the second and third noble truths. And then we're told she takes up the Buddhist way. And that's the fourth noble truth. So Zen teacher, Grace Shearson, who's my teacher and wrote, literally wrote the book, uh, Zen Women, is a clinical psychologist as well. And one teaching that she has is a phrase or term. She says, Whitbo. And she turns you to your Whitbo, wanting it to be otherwise as a way for you to identify, to locate the source of your own suffering. You can ask yourself, what do I want that is not matching with how it really is, with reality as it is now? And I find this helpful because when we can stop and look at our seeds of greed, hate, and delusion that we're clinging to, the ways we want reality to be different from what it really is, we can really see the source of our own suffering. And this allows us then to make a choice to give up that ghost and stop asking reality to be something that other than it is. It may help us to see the ghosts that we're actually carrying around with us. Kisa Gutami's story resonates deeply with me. As a chaplain for the maternity ward and the neonatal ICU at a large acute care children's hospital. And also as the mother of three young adult children. 
parents' sense of purpose, meaning, and even self-worth become really tied up in their children. And this happens even before the children are born. And you may think, oh, once your child has grown up, you can let that go. But I know from my own mother who bore 11 children and died at the age of 94, literally one of the last things she said to me on her, at her deathbed was her concern for the well-being and happiness of her children. So it never goes away. So right now, one of my three children is in another country struggling with her life and her studies. And I see it so difficult for her and I wanna hop on a plane and go fix things. And I want reality to conform to my hopes and desires for her. And it's particularly difficult, of course, for her and for all of us in this online COVID world. But when I stop and I think, what's happening here? I can see that I'm carrying around that baby girl that I had such hopes and dreams for. And I can see that I'm suffering because I want her world to be something other than it is. I want reality to conform to my dreams and hopes and desires for her. So I can put that down. I can see that my suffering comes from a good place of my love and concern for her. So of course, I'm not going to put that part down, but the part where I suffer over what's happening and what I can or cannot do to change things, that part I can name and I can put down. So, Halloween. I appreciate Halloween. I appreciate the Mexican Day of the Dead, and I appreciate a Sajiki or Hungry Ghost ceremony. These are times during the year that we can actually stop in community and take a look at those ghosts. Yes, our real losses. And there have been many deaths and real losses, maybe people we know personally in this past year through COVID and other means. And there are tangible losses in our lives, maybe livelihood, studies, home, job. And there are all the other intangible, invisible losses of our hopes, our expectations, how we wanted reality to be, kind of, it's like being haunted by the ghost of pre-COVID days. And we want reality to get back to what it was before. And so we can recognize that that's a whitbo. That's us wanting it to be otherwise. And to take time today in community to invite in those hungry ghosts, invoke them, bring them in, make some mischief with them, dance with them, honor them, feed them, offer support to each other for our hungry ghosts. And then maybe, just maybe, we can put them to rest. So in closing, I'd like to just take a quiet moment before I open to your questions for us just to sit with whatever may be present for us in terms of those hungry ghosts and grieving and losses that may be present for us today. Thank you. 
And now I'm told that somehow through the magic of Zoom, uh, I could take questions. Yeah. Can you see hands on the screen or do you want to make it gallery view? Would that help you? Um, I was told, oh, now what did I do? <laughs> see, the ghosts are here with us making mischief. Uh -oh. <clears throat> I think it's already running. Yeah, yeah, you just have to enlarge it somewhere. Yeah, is there a Zoom link at the top? There we go. Oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. Anyone skilled at this? Is there a link? Here we go. There we go. Okay. And then enable people to unmute themselves. Okay. How do I do that? Oh. <laughs> this is great. We see the ghosts are present. There's more tricks than treats so far. Okay, they can. They can unmute themselves. Yeah, is that gallery? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I invite any questions or comments. Hi. Yes, hi. I am a parent also. So I have a resonate. One of the things when I first became a parent, I recognized sort of in people uh, that weren't parents. You could tell something about it. And uh, I was in graduate school and I wrote, uh, I needed to write about my uh, philosophies. It's something like uh, that we are all maternal. That maternal is <laughs> something that I was in art school. So the art graduate student, one of them was making two inch paintings and they covered the whole wall, nurtured, maternal. And then there are these huge, gigantic edifices, huge, you know. Nurturing and maternal, and then uh, an eloquent thought idea is nurturing. It's nurturing is comes with us, and I think with children, and for mo most of us, I think this all of that sort of pales because the intensity of nurturing this. I mean, my child was th almost this big. Mm -hmm. this, this, uh, I just started weeping as soon as it was born. Mm -hmm. It was so intense. And, uh, but then, <clears throat> as maybe it sounds like you know, around uh, 17, 18, my son, I have two of them. One's a daughter, one's my son. And, uh, he was going to leave. He did leave. And then went into depression. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was happening. And then I read on the Apollo Alpha Weekly cover, it said, empty nest syndrome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I read it and I was, wow, it's exactly what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I remember when I, my child, my first child was first born that, and I was doing Zen and I maybe that's why, I don't know. 
But I thought, you know, I've given this life its death. And, uh, and then I remember flying on a plane and they talked about, which is very helpful, the plane, because uh, I'm in depression, right? so the plane's going down and it has these signs, these signs on it, where the mass drops down. And it says to put the mask on first before you can. That's exactly right. So you're, you're, I really appreciate your resonating with this and opening up the conversation to include people who are not parents, because it is true. We know scientifically that uh, as mammals, we have built into our system um, the ability to nurture and to empathize with another being. This is why we suffer when we see our own child, but really anyone else in pain. We connect and it actually triggers an internal chemical reaction in our body and our brain uh, that causes us stress and pain. We feel it. This comes from a book called The Empathy Effect by Dr. Helen Rice. And also at the same time, um, we have uh, an ability which our Zen practice actually strengthens to stop, to notice the ways in which we're empathizing and suffering along with someone else. And this is a distinction we make uh, from empathy versus compassion. Empathy is natural. It comes along with being a human being. Compassion is something that we actually, so if you think of empathy as feeling, compassion is action. Compassion is the desire, the motivation to do something to alleviate suffering in ourselves or others. And so when we stop with the mask dropping in front of our face and we say, oh, I actually can't reach out and have a appropriate compassionate response to my child or anyone else until I put that mask of self-compassion on for myself and I take care of my own suffering. And here we know also from the science that what happens in that moment of offering ourselves self-compassion, that it triggers another set of chemical reactions in our body the actual nurturing chemicals that are released when, for example, mother nurses her baby. And this allows our parasympathetic nervous system to balance us and we self-regulate. And those highs of, of panic and anxiety or lows of depression are balanced out and we come to a centered place where we can help another. So thank you for bringing that forward. We're all compassionate, nurturing beings, whether or not we have children. You know, the, <clears throat> just taking note of compassion uh, comes from two Latin words, cum means with, and passer means you should suffer. Mm -hmm. So compassion is not feeling sorry for somebody. Compassion is suffering with somebody. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think that's the kind of the literal translation from Latin. And I think that compassion science, which there's literally volumes about now, shows us that there is a difference between empathy and compassion. So that empathy is something, and I see this in my colleagues in a healthcare setting, empathy, when you are overwhelmed with every day watching the suffering of other people, um, you can fall into empathetic distress and eventually it becomes burnout. You literally don't have the capacity anymore. Uh, but compassion is something that can be cultivated because even the desire to end someone's suffering, like in the story of Kisakutami, her neighbors who invited her in and offered her tea and support, even though they couldn't give her the things she wanted, in the form of a mustard seed. But that act of caring for her settled out their own worries about her. So that is a way that, so there's no such thing um, as compassion fatigue. 
there is something called uh, empathy fatigue, but compassion is something we can cultivate. And um, especially in community, when we witness each other's suffering and then we're present for them. And that's why I say, you know, today's a great day to welcome in, feed and support the hungry ghosts. And compassion has a price tag because it means I am suffering with them. Mm -hmm. I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I would say that in my own practice, so uh, literally almost every day I meet with a family uh, who is losing or has lost a baby. And you would say, well, gosh, how do you do that every single day? It's painful. It's about the most painful. I can't imagine anything worse. And I'm witnessing that. And so how do I remain upright and of use? Mm -hmm. And it's from what, what I've learned, and I practice it. That's why I'm such a big fan of this thing we call Zen of our ability to return to a centered place, to take care of our own suffering, to notice it and care for it. And then we can offer a compassionate response, which doesn't mean we fix something. So at the risk of being a little bit difficult, I'll give an example from just this past week where I came alongside a family who had two premature twins. And the one twin that they thought would do the best actually was not going to survive. And no one could convince the parents that the most compassionate thing to do was to have what we call comfort care, to allow that baby to die gracefully without pain. And so when coming alongside, I recognized I'm a twin. And I recognized that I asked one of the nurses, how do we handle the other twin during this time? And she said, oh, we put them in the other room so the parents could focus on the one friend. And I said, I'm a twin and I know that those two twins have a bond that will last well beyond that first twin's life. Is there something we can do to bring that twin into this moment along with her parents for this moment of goodbye? And the nurse said, we've never done that before, but let's see. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, the chief of neonatology, all of those ICU nurses, the social worker, everyone who was just really at a standstill of sadness and what can we do? This is such a sad situation. All of a sudden we had something to do. It was, oh, we can't fix this situation, but what we can do is provide this family with the most compassionate, loving end of life we can offer. And this was a miracle of science too, to get these two babies. If you would have seen these two babies next to each other in their mother's arms, with their hands holding together, both still alive, and the look on that mother's face, that beaming smile, that is compassion. And that allowed all of us to go home that night with some measure of, rather than, wow, this job is horrible with a wow, what a wonderful place that we can be and offer such a thing in that moment. So that's my take on compassion and how it differs from empathy. I, I find it really difficult to stay with this with the suffering with them and not try to fix it for them. Yes. You that and is, everyone that's else. <laughs> that's exactly right. You and everyone else. That's the, that's the most difficult thing. And that's where our practice can come in when we can notice. 
I can't fix this, but I can offer compassion. Are there questions from anyone online? Yes, hi. Can you come off mute? Or do I have to do that? There you go. Yes, I can't see your name. Susan? Susan, you're on mute. She, you have to unmute. There you go. There you go. Go ahead, Susan. Thank you so much for your talk and for the uh, deepening of, of my understanding about these uh, celebrations of the hungry ghost. I have not partaken much of them. And I see now the significance from, a, from this angle, from the, from the Buddhist angle. Um, but I want to speak briefly about your twin example, because I used to work with, um, I, I taught birth preparation classes, perinatal issues for many years. And uh, there was a point at which I had two friends, both pregnant with twins, coming to my classes. Both bore their twins on the same day. Um, the difference being that one set of twins were boisterous boys that we saw almost daily at school. The other set of twins uh, included, there were girls, and they included one with spina bifida. And that was 45 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there, there may be someone here who knows this family now because that's still they're very uh the remaining twin is very close to me still and her mother um the point you made about how to manage very different in those days at one point the mom was down in la with the twin that was very ill and the other you know so how to manage these twins with very disparate needs but the final um, outcome was that the parents chose for the twin with spina bifida to uh, be let go, but they wanted her at home. And she lived six weeks. Mm. And she died on Christmas Day. Mm. Her other twin together. And that surviving twin has grown up with an angel on her shoulder. She thinks of that sister as her angel. And when it was time for her to become a mother, she named her daughter after that twin. And so then the grandmother says, wait, that's my Sylvie. And then the mother says, no, this is my Sylvie. But they get Sylvie again. again. It's been a remarkable family. So I, I've never any professional describe a situation as you have with your own personal experience of being a twin and your ability to bring the team together gracefully so that everyone came away with new understandings. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I can really feel how even 45 years later, Sylvie is present for you. We invite her in. May she be well, peaceful and happy wherever she is today. Any other questions? We have time for maybe one more. Two. One or two more. Anyone online? Yes. Hi, Tyson. Yes. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's fine. Thank you so much for this talk. And, you know, I saw that you chose, I assume that you chose the Metta Sutra for a reason. It has that line in it that you're kind of speaking to. You know, let me not be submerged. Let us not be submerged by the things of the world. And when I hear that line, I, oh, man, that... That really, uh, that really speaks to, 
to our situation, I think, in the world when you open your heart. And yeah, I, I'm just in awe of your ability to maintain, as you said, the ability to be skillful, to remain skillful. We have to somehow find a reason to let go of, of this sadness while still remaining um, feeling, while still feeling, and somehow have it pass through us. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, about how how do you navigate that? And thank you. Thank you for your work and your service and your love. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. And also for recognizing, um, actually, Doug offered the two, two different readings. And I said either would be fine, but I was really hoping it would be the student for that very reason. Also speaks to, you know, as a mother watches over her only child. You know, that level of concern and nurturing uh, for the whole world uh, that we bring, we can bring uh, through this practice. So for me, what works, and this is why, you know, I'm so dedicated to um, Zen practice, the practice of uh, sitting, just sitting, because this is a space especially in a community like this where we're supported, but we can go into that place of centeredness. It's like putting that oxygen mask on. So in the moment when I'm meeting with a family that is just overwrought and so forth, sometimes if they allow me to, um, prayer, if they're, if they're of a faith tradition that offers prayer, um, but even after that, um, and many people now are, especially in the Bay Area, don't identify with any particular religious tradition. They're nuns, N-O-N-E-S, or spiritual but not religious. And so um, I offer a practice that actually helps ground me at the same time of returning to our breath. And I'll talk through a just a short meditation that allows us to first really feel in our body that in this moment, we're safe. In this very moment, because this, this what triggers our response and that stress hormone to happen is this belief in our mind that we're being chased by a tiger. This is what causes our um, reactive system to get going. And um, of course, we weren't meant to live with tigers, but in effect, the way our current society is set up, we're feeling all the time triggered and living with that stress hormone. So that's the first thing that I remind myself and remind people that I'm sitting with is, if you take a moment to breathe, and feel in your body, you can actually realize, okay, actually, right now I'm safe. And then secondly, we are invited to act, to realize that we have what we need. We have food, clothing, place to great healthcare, et cetera. Um, and this is not true for everyone in the world today. And you might, there are points in time you haven't maybe felt you had everything you need, but in that moment, generally speaking, in this moment, generally speaking, we have what we need to live a good life. And then lastly, to remind ourselves that we're deeply cared for and loved. And we're supported by the entire universe of myriad things and by each other in community. And if you take a moment to really, in a meditative state, recognize, okay, this engages our parasympathetic nervous system and allows us to make an appropriate response in the next moment. So that's what helps me. It's a, it's a moment by moment practice. It's not something you can all oh, wait till I get home, but witness suffering all day long. You, ha you have to stop in the moment you're noticing your suffering and deal with it. That, that, that's that oxygen mask. 
Laura Yates online. Which one? Laura. Laura, do you want to come off mute? Did you have a question? Uh, I I just wanted to thank you so much for your for your talk and that it's it's uncanny to me how every week attending these talks the that each one has been so prescient in terms of what I am experiencing in my own life and I just wanted to let you know how much that has touched me your words um, the other thing I wanted to say was that the the other group that celebrates among others that celebrates this holiday are the Celts and that this is the Celtic New Year, which will begin at sunset. And mm. that it is, it falls halfway between the equinox and the solstice. And it was their celebration of the end of the harvest and the beginning of winter and the beginning again of a renewal and another cycle. So, you know, it's so interesting that so many cultures have these dates around them. Um, but I've always personally for years celebrated the Celtic New Year. So hearing about the Buddhist tradition um, it's been, has been enlightening in terms of this cycle. So thank you. Thank you for pointing out, yes, there are many, many traditions around the world um, and religious and otherwise who have ways of celebrating this time. And another piece that you kind of brought up is that it's we're in a liminal space. Basically what this ceremony and Halloween is all about, I think, is um, tolerating and actually welcoming in a liminal space, liminal beings, right? You're, we're moving from the end of something else toward a new beginning, to the start of something else. But that space in the middle where you're not really sure what's coming next, that's super hard for us to deal with. And that's where I think we as human beings tend to suffer. But when we can just settle into, oh, yeah, we're in this space now and honor it and then let go and set an attention for what the new thing is going to be, I think we're better, better set up than to just pretend like it's not, it's not there. Um, I uh, deeply appreciate this uh, talk and conversation. Um, as as uh, chaplains, as priests, we sometimes are asked to do these difficult things. And as a, uh, as a father, too, it helps in meeting these moments of, uh, for example, um, coming up here will be a Jesus ceremony for a woman who, who lost her child a couple of years ago. And the story really helped to uh, see the bigger picture of the loss of not just uh, the loss of the life, the loss of the potential, the loss of the meeting, feeling the milestones of, of this child's life, of uh, um, helping the, the satisfaction that comes from helping numerously and, and just all that loss of potential experience with this other being and loving this other being is uh, just a huge um, hit in the heart of people that, um, Also, you brought up about the loss of status and station in that whole experience as well, which has such profound family, even deep situational relationships with people. And this, uh, yeah, this, this 
Buddhist story is very valuable in this understanding. Um, so that maybe these uh, the depths and here going to house to house to house to hear the depth of experience of loss that others felt turned her attention away from just here, but to empathize with each household and seeing how vast this um, suffering goes. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. How are we doing time-wise? Is there another question online? I have to amend what you just said because it's kind of that I, that suffering, you know, it's like the sum of our scars, right? In some ways, that's who we are. The suffering is in some way you can bow to it. In the end result, there's a great appreciation for the woman appreciated all the people that they, she had, and she couldn't see it before. So through her suffering, it widened, right? There's a, just to mention this, I'm really intrigued with this pottery breakage called Kensugi, mm -hmm. where we put things back together and in the cracks is gold, not to forget, but to, to memorialize. And anyway. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so with that, I would just uh, to close, just to invoke all our hungry ghosts, all the suffering, all the difficulties, all the losses, real and symbolic, and bow to them and honor them because those are our ancestors that brought us together in this moment. And it's what connects us to each other, our empathy and our suffering we realize that what connects us as human beings and allows us to care for each other, especially in community. So may we all be well, happy and peaceful and settled with our ghosts. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.